Alrighty, shalom and welcome ladies and gentlemen to this week's Torah portion study. As you can see, the format's a little bit different here today. We had some issues with the Be Live servers today, so today we are coming to you in a much different format. But we will be following the same segments that we do whenever it is that we do the study live, as a matter of fact. We will be starting out with the uh, the Semitic uh, things that we end up finding within that of the Torah portion, relating them to Brit Hadashah. We'll be going through that of Semitic thought and Hasidic thought, and going and looking at those through the words of Chazel, as well as the New Testament as well from the Torah portion. And we will also be doing the Shadows of the Messiah segment, where we find the Messiah through the Hebrew, where we find the Messiah through that of the words of Chazel, and all of these things that uh, validate the New Testament as being that of God-breathed, given to that of the nations. And also we'll be wrapping it up as we do every single week with the words of the Zohar. Now, one of the things that I want each and every single one of you to do is that uh, you can go and subscribe to these video or the audio teachings uh, right there at all the links that are listed below the title of this teaching, and you'll be able to uh, go and get anything that um, you have previously missed in MP3 format or in video format. We have this across several different platforms. We have it on all of our social media uh, platforms as well as that of YouTube, Vimeo, iTunes, which seems to be the big one, as well as on our website, lapidjudaism.com, by going and clicking on the podcast tab and then click on Brutal Planet, and you'll be able to find all of these teachings from the past 10 years right there. Okay, and they're all absolutely free. And so let us go ahead and get started and jump into this week's Torah portion, which is the Parshish. Let me go and turn there real quick. The Parshish Chai Sarah. All right. So let us go ahead and get started. And one of the things that we always end up doing is in this segment, we go and we start out with the Hebrew. So let us go and look at the Hebrew here for this verse. And it says, Vayihiyu chayi Sarah mia shana v'esrim shana v'sheva shanim shene chayi Sarah. Okay, and that's what is written there. Now, one of the things that we that we see there within that of the English, as well as within that of the Hebrew, and let's go and read this from the Gutnach Chomish. It says. Sarah's lifetime was a total of 100 years, 20 years, and 7 years. The years of Sarah's life were all equally good. Now, the things that are in parentheses there are things that are found within the Targumim. The thing that makes the Gutenach Homish amazing is that, first of all, you have the Masoretic text, which is the Hebrew, on one side of the page, and then in the translation, you have the translation from the Targumim, which brings out 
fuller understanding of what is actually being said here. So the things that are in parentheses, in all honesty, we really don't need them in this verse. In some places we do, but here we really don't because we're going to be focusing in on the aspect that this term, Chai Sarah, is mentioned twice within the very first word of this Parshish. Now, why is this significant? It is significant for many reasons. And one of the main ones is because of the fact that, first of all, when the Parsha starts out within a couple of verses, just within a couple of verses, and we have three whole chapters here of the Torah that are speaking on the death of Sarah and everything that happens after it. But yet, the Parsha is called Chai, the life Sarah of Sarah. That's what the name of the Parshish is. So why is it that it's called the life of Sarah when actually this entire Parshish speaks upon that of her death? And one of the things that Chazel says in terms of this, that the reason why it mentions Chai Sarah twice within the very first verse of this Parshish is because of the fact that it alludes to that of the Bayis Hagmikdash, the Holy Temple. How it is that the Holy Temple was destroyed, and then it was again resurrected, which pays homage to the previous Parshas, Vayera, where it speaks on the resurrection of Yitzhak, according to that of the sages. How it is that Yitzhak died at the, at the Akidah, and they say this is the very first time that we find resurrection of the dead, known in Hebrew as Techiah. How it is that this is the first time that we find this within that of the Torah. And this is why it is that it says within that of the Talmud that, that all of Israelites have a share in the Elom Haba, except for those who claim that resurrection of the dead is not a biblical premise within that of the Torah. The very first concept that we get from this is from that of Hazel in terms of, in terms of Yitzhak at the Yakidah, that he was resurrected according to them, that this is the very first time that his soul leapt out of him and then came back. And the reason why they say this is because when we see that Abraham, Abraham of Enu, ended up coming back to that of Sarah, it doesn't mention Yitzhak. It doesn't mention Isaac anywhere within that portion of the Parshas. And so this is what it, where it is that Hazel gets this premise from. And this is why it is that when we look to Brit Hadashah, we see within there that first of all, that the, um, that the uh, uh, Sadducees did not believe in the concept of Halomabah. They didn't believe in the concept of Tekiah, resurrection of the dead, or as I mentioned before, Olom Haba, the world to come. They didn't believe in these premises. They didn't believe in the premise of Mashiach either because of the fact that they basically said, we don't need the words of Chazel. We don't need the words of the Sanhedrin, the, the rulings that it is that they gave. But we see that Paul goes and makes note within that the book of Acts. He says, we uphold these things. Now, let me not get so far off track here, because there's another reason why it is that we bring up this premise of Chai Sarah. 
And this is also a premise that's going to get in to our Hasidic thought in terms of of uh, the term Chayi Sarah being mentioned twice. Now, this actually I wasn't actually planning on bringing up uh, from the from the Dalage. As a matter of fact, I was going to be going straight to the Aramaic, so there's not a slide for this one. But I, I, I find this to be helpful in being able to find this um, this uh, uh, parallel uh, from the Hebrew to the Aramaic, because we're going to be spending a little bit of time in terms of that of er, of the Aramaic here. And uh, let me make sure that I got the right verse here. Okay. All right. And one of the things that we see from the words of Yeshua in terms of verse 6 of chapter 14 of the book of Yohanan, the book of John, and in Aramaic is called Yohanan. Okay, there's some slight differences here. It says, Anochi haderech vihaemet vihachaim. Okay, and you guys know this phrase right over here. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Okay, now why do I bring this up? Okay, well, with the word chai is the word life, which is where we get the word chai in the parshas chai Sarah. Okay, but the issue that we have here is that Dalage is 16th century. His Hebrew rendering is 16th century. Okay, so this is not a base text. We cannot use this as a base text. But, however, as many of you know, I am an Aramaic primist. Okay, I personally believe that the original is indeed the Kaboris Codex of the Aramaic. And there's something that is interesting in terms of the word chai, or chaya, or chai, which is, you know, they, they uh, change based upon gender, they play, change based upon grammar, and all of these things, um, that we end up finding within the, twice within that of the Parshish chai sarah, in the very first verse, and within the words from the Mashiach himself. So what we're going to do is we're going to go to the Kaboris Codex, and we're going to find a much more deeper meaning of this through Aramaic, okay? Now, to give you a little bit of background for Aramaic, for those who don't know anything about Aramaic, Aramaic, we find several chapters within that of the Bible, most notably Daniel, Zechariah. We even find words, as a matter of fact, within the book of Bereshit or Bereshit or Genesis, we find uh, Aramaic words being used there. And even within that of your Greek New Testament, you find several Aramaic words found all throughout there and several Aramaic transliterations from which I believe they transliterate from the Kaboris Codex um, within that of the Greek New Testament and the Latin as well. And so, you know, there's a lot of evidence in, in, in terms of this. Now, Aramaic started to become the way of the Jewish people around the time of the Medo-Persian Empire, as well as the Babylonian Empire and the Babylonian exile. And, the Me and well, we mentioned the Medo-Persian Empire. And then as well during the Greek Empire, where we had this uh, a little bit of a change where we had both Greek-speaking Jews and Aramaic. And the way of Hebrew was basically lost, except for the religious cognoscenti, the, the high 
um, the highly intelligent individuals, the scholars and the people who were involved within that of the operations, the Baishak Mikdash, as well as the rabbis and so on and so forth during the times of Yeshua. This is why it is that they had interpreters whenever the Torah was read in Hebrew and taught within that of Hebrew, there was an Aramaic translator there so that the common people would be able to understand what was being said. So Aramaic has a very, a very deep, um, very deep attachment to the Hebrew language, and they learned it so quickly because of the fact that it was a Semitic language. And many things are very similar as it is that you will hear. There are some differences within that of Aramaic, however. You know, you take, for instance, within um, Hebrew, we don't have a W sound. You know, the Vav can make three different sounds. It can make a V sound, it can make an O sound, it can make a U sound, but it doesn't make a W. And many times you see people transliterate the four-letter name of God with a W, and there's no W in Hebrew, who is the issue. Uh, but within Aramaic, we do have a W, you know, and the Vav is actually called a Wa within that of Aramaic. We do have that there. And so you'll you'll find some things that are very similar as well as some things that are very different as well at the same time in terms of that of Aramaic. And for those of you who want to learn these Semitic languages, one of the things you could do after Shabbos is go and sign up over at the Hebrew and Aramaic Learning Institute, which is a place where I'm one of the instructors over there. I'm one of the Hebrew instructors, not one of the Aramaic instructors. My Aramaic's okay. It's not that great. I'm still learning my Aramaic, as a matter of fact, from the teacher that we have over there at the Hebrew and Aramaic Learning Institute, as a matter of fact. You can learn both of these languages on your very own time right over there. But let us go now to uh, to the book of Yohanan, John chapter 14, verse 6, from that of the Gabor's Codex, okay? And here's how it reads within that of the Aramaic. It says, Amir le Yeshu. Inana orcha we shara'a wachai. Okay, that's the thing we're going to be focusing in on. Wachai la anash athi lawath ave ila nb. Okay, and that's what it says within there. And, and um, you know, basically, you guys know the phrasing. Now, one of the things that you'll notice there is within that, and I did a little bit of changing there within that of the Aramaic scriptures, I actually put a slash over there where it says, I am the life. I ended up putting a, a dash over there saying that it could be either life or salvation. Okay, now this is very interesting. This is very interesting. So the word chayi within that of Aramaic has the same meaning within that of Hebrew, okay? But... At the same time, it also has a dual meaning as well, which we can relate back to that of the Hebrew at the same time. Maybe there was a much more deeper understanding of this, considering that Aramaic, uh, this particular style of Aramaic, is um, you know very much in the, in the, at the same time in the, in the same place as that of. Hebrew, because we end up finding Aramaic being mentioned even within the book of Genesis. So it is, you know, just as old. Hebrew is probably just a little bit older, but, you know, just just as old as this. But every time that we find the word chayi within that of the Kaboris Codex or the Aramaic scriptures, 
one of the things is that we ultimately end up finding is that basically it has a dual meaning because in other places the word chai is not translated to life but is instead translated into salvation one place that that this that this occurs is within that of the book of John chapter 4 verse 22 and what it says over over there is aton sagdin anton um lemeden dala yain anton khandin sagdin khayen lima dayalin khamin de khayi Men inun. Okay? And that that's where Yeshua goes and says, for salvation is of the Jews. Okay? And so with that, we see that the word chai there is translated as salvation. But we can actually go and implement the double meaning there. We can actually rightfully say that when Yeshua says, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life, we could also translate it as, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the salvation, okay? And we could also go and say that, that when Yeshua is brought before that of the Samaritan woman, he could be saying, of course, that salvation is of the Jews, but he's, all, he's also saying that the life is of the Jews at the same time, which makes sense because of the fact that we find many mitzvahs within that of the Torah, where we see that that uh, we are reminded to not be like Egypt. Within Egypt, they worshiped the dead. They, you know, did all of these things in worship of the dead. But Judaism is the antithesis of the religion of Egypt. In Judaism, it is the religion of life. So we see that these concepts are tied together. So, when we read this concept as well, within that of Chayi Sarah, or Chayi Sarah, one of the things that when we read the concept of Chayi Sarah, we could actually read it as such. Sarah's salvation was a total of 120 years and seven years. Which makes sense in the words of the Messiah, considering that he said, the time of salvation is now. The years of salvation uh, of Sarah's salvation were all equally good. But see also, as well, we talked about how that paid homage to the concept within, within Parshas Vayera, where it is that Yitzhak was resurrected, the resurrection of the dead, which is also in relation to that of the Machut HaShemaim, the kingdom of heaven, and the Elom Haba, the world to come, where resurrection of the dead takes place. But also, within this concept at the same time, we see that there is a double life that is being lived. Not a double life like a person, you know, has two families or something like that, but there is the life here on earth. But then, with Sarah's death, life becomes a lot more. She becomes a lot more, and I can relate this to a personal thing as well. Several years ago, I was engaged to a young lady who passed away from cancer. 
it was it's something that has um rocked my world for many years i loved her with all of my heart with all of my soul and the thing is that upon her death this torah portion was coming up i found myself teaching on this in tears much in the same way that Avraham Avinu did with the passing of Sarah. But one of the things that I started to realize is that within Judaism, they say that when a person passes on, they're still alive and much more alive. How is this the case? When I look at her children and when I look at the way that she had influenced me, how it is that I have this obligation to carry on her chokmah, the wisdom that it is that she gave me, to carry on the things that she found within me that I, that were just buried so, so deep that I didn't even know that were a part of myself. And they were the things that it is that she saw within me that she wanted to bring to the surface. I realized really quickly how her influence on people and us looking back upon her influence, everybody that is that she came in contact with, her family and myself, as well as people that she worked with, people who would come in and out of her life at various points would think about the influence that she ultimately had on them. There was an influence that Sarah had on Avraham Avinu. And it's something that we ultimately end up seeing with this being said twice. Chai Sarah. And this will take us into our Hasidic segment of this teaching here today. Upon the death of Sarah, we see that Avraham Avenu has a goal. And that is to find a wife for his son, Yitzhak. He goes and sends out Eleazar, his servant. And we see that Eleazar goes and makes a vow to go and do this thing. To go and find a wife for that of Isaac, for Yitzhak. We also find that Abraham, as well goes and marries not shortly, or not a long time, but very quickly after the death of Sarah. Why is this? One of the things that we should know as individuals who are students of the Scripture and students of Judaism, and through the observation that we find within that of the secular world is that men and women are different. It's interesting that within Bereshit, we ultimately end up seeing that um, that when uh, um, Hava is made, she is made from the rib of Adon Horishon, of the first Adam. She is made from his rib. She is a part of him that he no longer has. And so for him to be a complete entity, it says it is 
not good that man should be alone. And within them becoming one, it uses the Hebrew term echad, as opposed to yachid. If it was yachid, that'd be rather weird. That would end up being some sort of uh, Bruce Jenner kind of thing. But one of the things that we recite each and every single day, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Elohenu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem Gevod, Bakutov Le'olam Bayed. And upon mentioning the name of God three times, we are related to that of the three pillars of the Sephirot. The three pillars of the Sephirot relate to the three emanations of Hashem. People ask me if I'm a Trinitarian, I say there's a lot of truth within that of Trinitarian theology. There's also a lot of bad theology in terms of it as well. The same can be said with that of oneness doctrine as well as modalism. In all honesty, I think it's a collective thing between the three where there are parts of it that it gets right and it brings it all together, but I put it into Hasidic understanding. Because within that, of the three pillars of the Sephirot, we have the right side, we have the left side, and we have the middle pillar. When we go to the words of Chazel, and most notably that of uh, the Maharal of Prague, Rabbi Loyal, Rabbi Loyal said in the Derchaim, he said that a complete entity is made up of three parts, two parts that seem to be opposites, and then a middle part that bring the two together. Now, when we get into this, we have to think about Semitic thought. We have to think about language. We have to think about all of these things. When we think of the term Ruach HaKodesh, which is the Hebrew term for Holy Spirit. Within that, we find that it is grammatically feminine. Holy Spirit is grammatically feminine. In fact, even within that of the book of Ephesians, in most, in most translations, it says she, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is not a he. It is the feminine emanation of God. And we ultimately see this through attributes as well that are uniquely feminine, such as comfort, such as wisdom. All of these aspects are uniquely feminine. And so when we go to, like, say, for instance, the Zohar, the Zohar goes and says that the middle pillar of the Sephirot is the son of Hashem, the Mashiach which would be Yeshua HaNotzri. And so upon looking at that, what we ultimately see within the three pillars of the Sephiroth is the family. The idea of family and the different operations that the family has. The Apostle Paul goes into great detail on this in terms of covering, in terms of the levels of servitude, how it is that God serves Mashiach, and how Mashiach serves the man, and how the man serves his wife, and how the wife serves the children, and so on and so forth, acting as a, as a covering all the way down the line. God acts as a covering for Mashiach. Mashiach acts as a covering for the man. The man acts as a covering for his wife, and the wife acts as a covering for the children. There's a story within that of Hasidic thought about a man that was known as the Holy Celibate Shedla. Who is this man? Who is the Holy Celibate Shedla? 
Well, here's how the story goes. This was a man who was a, a Hasidic mastermind. This guy knew it all. He spent all of his time in the synagogue going through the library and just reading and studying and applying and all of these things. He did this days on end. So much so that he became so engrossed that he moved into the synagogue and fell asleep in the pews. And ultimately, the nation of Israel was all excited about the holy celibate Shalah would constantly come to him above that of the rabbis to go and get um, to go to go and get advice from him to learn the ways of Mashiach. He was considered to be a zadik, righteous individual in the land of Israel. Then what happens? The holy celibate Shalah passes away. And there was great parades for him. And everybody was mourning the loss of the holy celibate Shalah. When he goes into the Machut HaShemayim and he's before Hashem and the council of Zedekim, Hashem and the council of Zedekim say to him, You, sir, did not fulfill your role. You have done nothing. You have not learned how to even apply mitzvahs. How could this be? The guy kept kosher. The guy did Shabbos to the hilt of Rabbeinu Kalacha. He studied under the great minds of that of Judaism. He applied everything that it is that he learned. How is this possible that he didn't fulfill his role? Well, Hashem goes and tells him, you did not fulfill your role because of the fact that you were never married. Because of the fact that you never knew what it was like to have to compromise. You never knew what it was like to have to deal with financial issues because of a wife who's overspending. You never had to deal with somebody else being in your space and having to relate shalom bayis. You never had to learn these things. You never did these things. So therefore, you could never have gone and fulfilled a single mitzvah. How is this? How is this? I get emails from many people all the time who are people that have started a walk within that of Torah and Messiah. And then they have a spouse who is, you know, still within, you know, uh, Christian ideas of theology. And this word keeps coming up. This word of divorce. I, I want a wife who is, you know, going and applying the Torah, who is upholding the Torah and all of these things. And I say that when you are going and criticizing your wife, you yourself are incapable of upholding the Torah. You're incapable of doing it. For you are given this amazing opportunity to really fulfill mitzvahs in the way of having to maintain shalom bais. You're having a challenge that God himself has given you. For she is indeed your soulmate. But you have rejected her because of your own egotism, because of your own haughtiness. And therefore, you feel it is better to have somebody that just agrees with you 
Because, like on social media, people tend to surround themselves, sadly, with people who only agree with them, who will not challenge them, who will not go and test them and make them advance further within that of their, in, in, in terms of their, um, the way that it is that they should live for that of Mashiach, for the glory of Mashiach, to be able to fulfill the two most important mitzvahs. To love Hashem your God with all your mind, heart, and soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, spoken by that of both, that of the Mashiach as well, as spoken by that of Rabbi Hillel within that of the Talmud. I ended up doing a 14 or 15 episode teaching on this entire idea of Shalom Ba'is. It's my Garden of Peace uh, series. You guys can go and find those absolutely free in the podcast version. You can find them on YouTube. You can find them on Vimeo. We have them in a sort of playlist and all that stuff so you can make your way through all of them. The thing about it, though, is that the thing else I'll, I'll, I'll tell you is that I've gone through my third copy of Rabbi Shalom Arusha's book, The Garden of Peace, A Miracle Guide for Men, where it is that we did that series from. Gone through with three copies of that. I've never been married. But the thing about it, though, is that I would say that, first of all, each and every single man needs to understand this. That, first of all, us men are givers. Women are made to be receivers. That we, first of all, should never comment or criticize a woman under any circumstance, no matter what it is, under no circumstance, should a man ever comment or criticize a woman. These are concepts that it is that are not a part, sadly, of the Hebrew roots faith, the messianic faith, and definitely not a part of the secular world, nor within that of Christianity, sadly. And it's a concept that every single Jewish individual learns by the age of 13. And there's a reason why it is that, that, that uh, uh, Jewish weddings are so successful. Because of the fact that there's a 97% success rate after 10 years. Within Christianity, there's 51% success rate after 5 years. Within the Hebrew Roots Movement, there's an 87% failure rate after 1 year. That's scary. That's scary stuff. And it all deals with this concept of understanding, first of all, this concept that God made him and her to be echad, for him to have his rib back, for him to be able to get that wisdom that it is that only she can give him. That's important. That should be something that each of us men who are single out there should be looking for. And so as we go through our Shadows of the Messiah or the Messiah within the Torah segment of this study here today, I am going to go and refer to book one of the Shadows of the Messiah series put out by First Fruits of Zion. There are six books in the series, each corresponding with the book of the Torah, help you through finding the Messiah through each and every single week's Torah portion. And then there's an appendix as well that you can also get. And I believe they only sell those now within the entire series or you have to join Torah Club in order to get these. But I'm going to go and show you guys a chart that is within uh, this week's Torah portion, Chai Sarah, um, on page 118, if it is that you have the books. Now, one of the things that we see here is that we are alluded to yet again the very first four words of the Parshas, in the very first verse. 
which is Vayihiyu Chai Sarah Mia. Okay, these are the first four words within that of the Torah portion. And one of the things that we see here is that if we were to take each and every single first letter of the first four words and we jumble them up, we end up getting the word Mashiach. Okay? Now, why is this relevant? This is the way that, in many ways, Kabbalistic works of the Torah, such as Sefer Yetzirah, such as the Zohar, such as several others. This is, in many ways, how it is that uh, some of these mysteries and uh, things of Hashem are revealed by taking the letters and realizing that each and every single letter has a meaning behind it, and it also has a gematria value uh, behind it, and also how it is that we find letters in different um, in different orders in certain places. Sometimes letters are missing in all these things. And there are reasons for all of these things within the, the Torah, the Ketuvim, and the Nevi'im, and as well as within the Aramaic Brit Hadashah, as well within the, the Gaboris Codex, which we mentioned earlier. Now, the thing that is very interesting here is that within this phrase, Vayihiyu Chai Seramie, Again, we have the word Mashiach if we go and we put every first letter within there. But one form of it is not in the word Mashiach. The other form, once they're jumbled up, they are. Now, this is very much in relation to several different Jewish concepts and the words of the Messiah himself talking about how it is that Messiah is not revealed to some, how some eyes are closed and how he is found to be hidden through that of the words of Rav Shaul. The Apostle Paul goes and makes note of this in several different places. But also, at the same time, we see that we have to have the jumbled up, the time where it is that Mashiach is concealed, then we have the time where it is that he is revealed, where the letters all come together, and we have this term, Mashiach. This, as well, is in relation to something else that we will be talking about in the Zohar segment as well. And we're not going to get too ahead of ourselves, but, I, but a lot of these concepts that we've spoken about earlier are going to compound upon one another when we get to that segment. But it's very interesting that with this, how we have the two forms of the word Mashiach, the jumbled up, and then the one put into proper order within this chart here, it reminds me of, first of all, how it is that it is said through that of Torah Shebi through that of the oral Torah, it goes and makes note that the Shekinah, the divine presence of Hashem, was over that of Sarah's tent. The divine presence was over it. When Sarah died, the Shekinah had left over that of Sarah's tent. But then, when Yitzhak, Isaac, had married Rivka, Rebecca, we see that the Shekinah come, came back. And this is in relation to not only the patriarchs, but the matriarchs 
of that of Judaism. How it is that when women pray within that of Judaism, they make note of the three matriarchs, starting with that of Sarah and Rebecca. And so the thing that is interesting about this is that we have this concept of the leaving of the Shekinah and then the return of the Shekinah. Once concealed, then revealed. Okay? And this gets into a concept that is found all through that of Tadashi Bialpe with the two comings of the Messiah. One known as Mashiach ben Yosef, Messiah son of Joseph, which relies upon that of the attributes of Joseph within that of the book of Genesis, not Joseph, um, you know, who married Mary, but the other Joseph that is mentioned in the book of Genesis, and that we spend a great deal of time talking about in the book of Genesis. A great deal of the book of Genesis is, believe it or not, not about Abraham Avenu, but instead about Joseph being this pinnacle figure within that of the very first book of the Torah. And so all of these things we find in relation to Joseph, who is known as the suffering servant Messiah. The suffering servant Messiah, it says, according to that of Sukkah 52a, within that of the Talmud, it says that he has died and is resurrected. It goes and it makes note of that, talks about Messiah ben Yosef being in relation to that of Isaiah chapter 53, as well as Sanhedrin 98 within that of the Talmud as well. Goes and makes note of Isaiah 53. The suffering servant is indeed the Messiah, despite what it is that modern-day anti-missionaries say today. They actually have to reject the Jewish oral Torah. They have to reject everything that Hazel says in order to make the case that the suffering servant Messiah is not a Messiah at all. They claim that it is the people of Israel, which is not the case. But we have these two concepts, Mashiach ben Yosef, and then we have Mashiach ben David. And it says in terms of the scripture about Mashiach ben David, it says that he will be revealed and known who it is that he is through all the nations, through every tongue, and everyone will confess that Yeshua is the Messiah. That's what it says in the book of Revelation, as a matter of fact. And it talks about this concept of how it is that Mashiach ben David, according to that of Chazel, is the revealed Messiah. We also have this concept as well within that of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Well, most notably, that of chapter 9, verse 4, where it is that we have the word le marbe within that of Hebrew, and the word le marbe means of the increase or of the government, is what it says. That's what le marbe means. Now, the thing with this is that we have what is known as a mem sofit. A mem sofit is a mem that is in its closed form that only comes at the end of a word, okay? Usually signifying either feminine or plural a lot of the times. The tav can also signify the plural as well. But 
the mem so feet has to be, the mem has to be open if it's in the middle of the word or at the beginning of a word, which marbe is technically the beginning. The lamed at the beginning for le basically uh, signifies of is what that means is attached to the word marbe, but we find that within all the Jewish scrolls, including the Masoretic text, that it is closed. We have a memsofit there. Talks about how it is that Mashiach, according to Hazel, the Mashiach is hidden. The Mashiach is hidden within that of, in relation to Messiah, or, or Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, where it talks about Ha'ama. Ha'ama technically means young maiden or young woman, but the Jews of the uh, of the Septuagint translated it to the Greek form of virgin. Why is this? Because of Hazel, because of the word Le Marbe, signifying not only Messiah being concealed, but also signifying a closed womb that could not give birth through that of natural means. Something that is very interesting considering that this is also in relation to that of Sarah, who had to go and bear Isaac through that of unnatural means with the help of Hashem. As a matter of fact, within that of Torah Shebi'alpeh, they go and they make note of this, how it is that Sarah said in last week's Parshas, how it is that she ended up saying, well, well what, you know, are my, uh, uh, is, is, is my, appearance going to be, am I going to be able to physically do this? Are you saying that I'm going to become young again? And all of these things. And basically, one of the things that we find interesting is that Avimelech then tried to take Sarah as a wife, but yet she was in her 90s. Avimelech was a rather young man. He found her incredibly beautiful. And it says that they act, that Hashem actually went and caused her to look as though that she was 20 years old, all of her organs were like that of a 20-year-old woman who would be able to bear a child at her very old and ripe age. These were all amazing supernatural things that God did in the life of Sarah, much in the same way of a virgin conceiving the Mashiach at the same time. Let us go ahead and get started in our Zohar section now. And as we go to the Zohar, we're going to be going to Zohar... Chai Sarah, uh, 26 to 260. And it says, within that of the Zohar, although Abraham knew that Sarah's image was revealed there, talking about over her tent, he left the tent to Isaac so he could see the image of his mother daily. Isaac, not Abraham, saw her image. This is the meaning of the verse. And Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. In Bereshit 25.5 All that he had alludes precisely to the image of Sarah that was inside the tent, for he gave it to Isaac to look to her. Now, in terms of this, this is in relation to, again, when we read the Zohar, we have to follow Midrashic material. We have to follow Mishnah. We have to follow Agadah, Midrashim, Shulchan Aruch. 
we have to know, basically, if we are going to be studying Zohar, we have to be familiarized with all of these rabbinic premises. Because otherwise, it's not going to make any sense to us. So what is this image? What is this image? This image is in many ways the Simsum, the constriction of God. But it says Sarah here. It says the image of Sarah. It doesn't say the image of God. It doesn't say, the, it doesn't mention Simsum anywhere here. How can you say that it's talking about the, the, uh, uh, the consecration of God? The idea of Simsum is a Kabbalistic idea that formulated around the time of the 11th century. And it was a concept that, you know, one of the things I always end up saying is that Yeshua taught Hasidic Judaism before Hasidic Judaism was ever a thing. Okay? Because this concept of Zimsum is a concept that is found all throughout Brit Hadashah. To have the idea that God himself would come in the image of a man, as a matter of fact, is, is, is something that, you know, is unheard of except for in Kabbalistic ideas. And so one of the things that is taught by that of Chazel is that the Shekinah, the divine presence of God, is a physical manifestation of God. The physical manifestation. Now considering that Avraham Avinu and Imu Sarah both walked in the ways of God. They were the representatives of Hashem throughout their generations. The thing that we end up seeing is that the Shekinah is indeed, in many ways, in relation to that of Sarah. But not only is it in relation to Sarah, but at the same time, it goes back to the premise that we spoke about in terms of the Messiah in the Torah segment. It goes back to this premise that, first of all, in terms of Sarah and in terms of this image, that this is in relation to the Shekinah, which according to that of Chazel, is a physical manifestation of God. Because many times you will find within that of the Tadash Yabektav, the written Torah, you will find within there where it says that we cannot see God's face. But at the same time, we also have um, well other verses as well, that God is not a man, thus he should lie. But we also have verses where it says that Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, and Aharon, Aaron, spoke with God panim hapanim, face to face, within that of the Mishkan. So we see something that is much different here in terms of that. We also have Joshua chapter 5 as well. We see a physical manifestation of God that... A, in the form of a soldier, where it is that Joshua goes to and bows towards and so on and so forth. One of the things that will come upon later is in terms of the story of Yahov. Within the coming weeks, we will find that the place where he wrestled with an angel of God named the place Peniel. Peniel, which means the face of God. It's very interesting these concepts are found all throughout here as well as within last week's Parshiot, we see that one of the angels was actually known as Elohim within that of the Hebrew. So we have all of these 
concepts that do deal with this with this premise. But when we deal with this premise, we have to realize that first of all, the Torah is true. God is not a man. So then how is it then that the Mashiach, who is, you know, said to be 100% God, 100% man, how is that possible? How is that not going against then the Torah and going into the realms of idolatry? Well, very simple. Because of the fact that when somebody says you, uh, you know, when they're going and describing you, you know, who it is that you are, they're not talking about your physical appearance. They're not talking about the basar. They're not talking about the goof. They're not talking about the flesh and the body. They're not talking about those things. But instead, they say, well, you know, if they're describing me, they're like, well, you know, Christopher really likes his coffee. Well, you know, Christopher likes 80s uh, uh, sitcoms. Christopher loves his uh, crime dramas. You know, Christopher reads a lot. Christopher's a, 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 a nice person. You know, the, you know, they will give these attributes that are part of who it is that I am. What makes me who it is that I am. They are describing the things that are a part of my nefesh and that of my neshama. The things that are a part of my soul. That are a part of my spirit. The things that are a part of me. The things that it is that you cannot identify just by physically looking at me. These are the things that make us who it is that we are. And so, with Mashiach, the, the flesh and the body was nothing more than a casing. That's all it was. For the real him, who he was, was within that of his ruach, within that of his neshama, within that of his nefesh, the things unseen were the things that it is that he was and the things that it is that he is. The things that are eternal, that carry on, that, that he brings up to that of the Father, are the eternal aspects of God. The things that are him and not the physical body. These are things that oftentimes anti-missionaries don't want you to think about. They often you know, say, well, he's a man, you know, and all this stuff, you know, but we know better. We know better because of the fact that we actually know that, uh, you know, within the words of Brett Hadashah, as well as Torah Bialpeg, talks about a marriage between that of the goof and the neshama, them operating in echad, as opposed to being a part of the same entity as them being yachid, that they work together, that there are different parts they're a part of the same thing, but they are still parts, all the same. And so what happened is the neshama, or not the neshama, but the shekinah, or as they say in North Carolina, the shekinah, went from that of over that of, of uh, Sarah's tent and then resided into the tent to where it is that Isaac resided with that of, of Rivka, of Rebecca. So, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank each and every single one of you for joining us here today as we went through our study this week. And um, I want to encourage each of you as well to make sure to go and check out after Shabbos 
the Hebrew and Aramaic Learning Institute. We use a lot of Hebrew words and sometimes a little bit of Aramaic in these teachings here today. And let me tell you something. Whenever it is many years ago when I started to learn the Semitic languages, and I learned them right, you know, with Nikud and learning grammar and all of these things and not just, you know, YouTube surfing and all that stuff like so many tend to do and get so much wrong. Uh, one of the things that I really started to realize is how it is that the Bible really is much more three-dimensional than it is that we realize. There's many premises that we brought out from, from the Hebrew that it is that you may not be accustomed to and many of your teachers may not be accustomed to because sadly... So many within that of the Messianic faith and the Hebrew Roots movement, as well as my faith, Lapid Judaism, don't know Hebrew. And that's something that a person should start to learn within a couple of years of their walk. And one of the things that we try and do over at the Hebrew and Aramaic Learning Institute is we made it affordable. It's only $15 a month, $40 a quarter, or you can get a lifetime pass for $130. And that is something that, you know, you're not going to find a deal like that anywhere else. Plus, you get to interact with your instructors and all that stuff. And we are more than happy to help you along the way and help encourage you and push you and challenge you. All right. And you get to go at your own pace, which is a lot of fun. But I want to thank all of you for joining us here today. I want to thank you for uh, going through this, this teaching and sticking with us. I know it's a rather long one here today. Um, usually they're about 45 minutes. We went over an hour today, but I want to thank all of you for joining us. And I wish each and every single one of you shalom brocha, peace and a blessing. Shalom.